Let's start this morning by praying together. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your goodness. We're thankful for um, this new year. We're thankful for the opportunity um, to begin it by gathering to worship together. Um, we're thankful for this day of rest that you've given us in the person of your Son as we are united to him and resting in all his work, Father. Father, um, this morning as we um, study again um, your word um, through the instruction and direction of John Calvin, we pray that you would bless us as we consider uh, the work of your Holy Spirit and um, the, the means of grace, the way that you establish our union with us and by faith. Um, give us this um, today, we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> All right, good morning. We are um, continuing the uh, series that we began in, I believe, early November, um, looking at a close read of John Calvin's Institutes. Our goal here is not simply to summarize the uh, content of the Institutes, but to look at the Institutes themselves, their actual words. And we've been working through chapter by chapter, book by book, um, the last several months in doing that. I remember that we began in the beginning in chapter 1 with Calvin's statement that nearly all the wisdom we possess, that is to say true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. For Calvin, this was primary, this was fundamental, that all knowledge consists of knowledge of God and knowledge of self. And these two kinds of knowledge are actually joined to one another, dependent upon one another. One of the things that we must know about ourselves, according to Calvin, is the way in which we have fallen into sin and corrupted the image of God in ourselves. And Calvin says, men do not therefore apprehend God as he offers himself, but imagine him as they have fashioned him in their own presumption. Here Calvin um, underscores this, this common um, reality for us as human beings, as those who are marred by sin, that we do not have true knowledge of God in ourselves, but we actually create idols and worship them instead. Um, so what was the response to that? Um, many things, but um, several weeks ago when we last had Sunday school on the 16th, we looked at what Calvin taught concerning um, the person of Jesus Christ, which is ultimately the Lord's answer um, to this corrupted knowledge that we have of God um, in our sin. Um, we saw how in, in the incarnation, God's natural son therefore fashioned for himself a body from our body, flesh from our flesh, bones from our bones, that he might be one with us. Um, so it is as if God and man are separated by a huge chasm um, man cannot ascend to God, God must ascend to man. Ungrudgingly, he, that is Christ, took on our nature upon himself to impart to us what was his and to become both son of God and son of man in common with us. Um, Jesus becomes our uh, means of being united to God. United, being united to Christ um, because uh, you, he is um, fully human means also to be united to the divine because he is also uh, fully God. Um, Calvin says, those who despoil Christ of either his divinity or his humanity diminish his majesty and glory or obscure his goodness. We, most, we must emphasize both. Our common nature with Christ, um, our human nature that we share with him, is the pledge of our fellowship with the Son of God. This is the glad tidings of the incarnation. And we looked um, several weeks ago, that same Sunday, at the work of Christ. Um, Calvin separates that really into three different parts, um, prophet, priest, king. Um, as prophet, um, Christ is the one in whom all things that are worth knowing about God are found. Um, this is what it means to, for Christ to be prophet, that outside Christ there is nothing worth knowing, 
and all who by faith perceive what he is like have grasped the whole immensity of heavenly benefits. All that is in God is revealed in Jesus Christ. And that is a a fundamental point that Calvin wants to make for us and the scriptures make again and again. Um, Also, um, Christ is our king. And as our king, Christ stands in our midst to lead us little by little to a firm union with God. In his kingship, um, Christ oversees us. He gathers us to himself. Um, He dies for our sins and is raised for our justification, uh, ascending to heaven and joining us into communion with God. In his priestly office, Christ is a pure and stainless mediator and by his holiness reconciles us to God. In his sacrifice of his death, um, he pays the payment for our sins and blots them out. Um, Calvin ends this section by saying this. I love um, this, this conclusion um, to the matter. He says that our whole, we see that our whole salvation and all its parts are comprehended in Christ. We should therefore take care not to derive the least portion of it from anywhere else. If we seek any other gifts of the Spirit, they will be found in His anointing. If we seek strength, it lies in His dominion. If purity in His conception, if gentleness, it appears in His birth. If we seek redemption, it lies in His passion. If acquittal in His condemnation, if remission of the curse in His cross, if satisfaction in His sacrifice, if purification in His blood, if reconciliation in His descent to hell, if mortification of the flesh in His tomb, if newness of life in his resurrection, if mortality in the same, if inheritance of the heavenly kingdom in his entrance into heaven, if protection, if security, if abundant supply of all blessings in his kingdom, if untroubled expectation of judgment in the power given him to judge. In short, since rich store of every kind of good abounds in him that is in Christ, let us drink our fill from this fountain and no other. Um, I love that because it just encapsulates and summarizes Calvin's profound focus upon the person of Jesus Christ and the way in which all of our salvation, all of our hopes are found in him. Calvin was a radically Christ-centered theologian um, and is a model for us in that way. So that was the conclusion of book two of the Institutes. Now we move into book three. Book three, the title of the book, remember the Institutes are divided into four different books, And the title of the third book is this, The Way in Which We Receive the Grace of Christ, What Benefits Come to Us from It, and What Effects Follow. Uh, Book one was about the knowledge of God and man, and really, in many ways, about the the lack of humanity's ability to know God in themselves because of sin. Book two focused on the work of the Redeemer, um, that is, the person of Jesus Christ, as we just saw. Now, book three will focus on the way that we receive Christ. How is Christ made ours? How are we given entrance into this Redeemer um, that is given for us? So he begins in this way, book 3, chapter 1. The things spoken by Christ profit us by the secret working of the Holy Spirit. So Calvin begins this book about how we receive Christ with the focus upon the person of the Holy Spirit. Um, For Calvin, this is uh, fundamental uh, for him. Um, Calvin is, is often known as the theologian of the Holy Spirit. You might not know that. You might just think that Calvin um, is, is known as the theologian of TULIP. Um, but actually, um, TULIP, you know, Calvin didn't even uh, come up with that acronym or those five points. Um, Calvinists did that. Uh, really, Calvin um, is known for many things um, beyond election. And one of the things he's most known for is his, um, is his work on the person of the Holy Spirit and his um, significance for us. 
So the first thing about the Holy Spirit that we need to know, the beginning of this chapter, the Holy Spirit as the bond that unites us to Christ. I think this is really fascinating because if you grew up like I did, at least, um, I grew up in the Pentecostal tradition, some of you grew up in other traditions that emphasize the, uh, the, the we might call the charismatic work of the Spirit, right, today. Um, and that, that's all well and good, and we can talk about that more at some point. But, but the thing I want to emphasize today is that Growing up, there was emphasis on the Holy Spirit being a lot of things and meaning a lot of things. Um, um, but for Calvin, and I think in the scriptures, the, what is the role of the Spirit? The role of the Spirit is to unite us to Christ. The role of the Spirit is to reveal Jesus Christ. If you think the Holy Spirit is doing something in your life that is not connected to your union with Christ, that is not connected to showing you who Jesus is, um, then it's likely not the Spirit that's doing that, because that's what the Spirit does. The Spirit is the one who reveals the Son, and the Son is the one who reveals the Father. All right, so book one, or book one chapter one, point one, section one. The Holy Spirit is the bond that unites us to Christ. Calvin says this. He says, we must now examine this question. How do we receive those benefits which the Father bestowed on his only begotten Son, not only for Christ's own private use, but that he might enrich poor and needy men? He spent the end of chapter 2 talking about the glory of Christ, right? All these things that Jesus has done in his work, in his incarnation, in his death, his resurrection, his ascension, all these things. And now the question is, how do we receive these benefits? How do they come to us? Um, not, they're not just given for Christ's own private use, but that he might enrich poor and needy men. He says, first, we must understand that as long as Christ remains outside of us and we are separated from him, all that he has suffered and done for the salvation of the human race remains useless and of no value for us. If Jesus is separate from us, if he is not brought into communion with us, then he is no good to us. Um, we do not benefit um, from his work. Therefore, to share with us what he has received from the Father, Christ had to become ours and to dwell within us. He had to become united to us. Um, for this reason, he is called our head, from Ephesians 4, and the firstborn among many brethren, from Romans 8. We also, in turn, are said to be engrafted into him, Romans 11, and to put on Christ, Galatians 3. For as I have said, all that he possesses is nothing to us until we grow into one body with him. Um, this is the doctrine here of union with Christ, union with Christ that is so fundamental um, for a, a truly classically Protestant and Reformed understanding of the Scriptures. A union with Christ has to be at the center of all that we understand regarding our salvation and our life in God. We must be brought into union with Jesus Christ. We must grow into one body with Him. Um, Calvin says, It is true that we obtain this by faith. Yet, since we see that not all indiscriminately embrace that communion with Christ, which is offered through the Gospel, Reason itself teaches us to climb higher and to examine into the secret energy of the Spirit by which we come to enjoy Christ and all his benefits. To sum up, the Holy Spirit is the bond by which Christ effectually unites himself to us. This is the work of the Spirit. The Spirit is the bond. He is the means by which Christ unites himself to us. Um, this language that we use of union with Christ, Christ being our head, um, Christ being our husband, 
um, Christ being our brother, all these things, they're, they're nonsensical unless this, the Lord can do something miraculous, right? Um, Christ is in heaven. Um, he has a body. We have a body. How can we be one body with him? It must be a miracle. It must be something that only God can do, that only God can do by the work of his Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the bond by which Christ effectually unites himself to us. Um, Section two, how and why Christ was endowed with the Holy Spirit. Christ came endowed with the Holy Spirit in a special way, that is to separate us from the world and to gather us unto the hope of eternal inheritance. We're going to look at this today that, that in the reading um, from Jesus' baptism, that the Spirit um, came and dwelt upon Christ in the form of a dove. Why was the Spirit given to Jesus Christ? Uh, many reasons, but we know, as Calvin says, that he is called the Spirit of Christ, the the Holy Spirit is actually referred to as the Spirit of Christ, not only because Christ, as eternal Word of God, is joined in the same Spirit with the Father, right? That the, the Spirit, we believe, proceeds from both the Father and the Son. Not only that reason, but also from His character as the mediator. The Holy Spirit is known as the Spirit of Christ because He would have come to us in vain, that is, Christ would have come to us in vain if He had not been furnished with this power, the power to fill us with His Spirit. This unique life which the Son of God inspires in his own so that they become one with him. The whole point of the gift of the Spirit is not, friends, to have miraculous signs and wonders. That is not the point of the gift of the Spirit. The gift of the Spirit is given to you that you might become one with your head. That is a, just a fundamental um, thing that we need to understand about the work of the Spirit. Um, the work the Spirit has given to us that we might become one with Jesus Christ, the hope of our salvation. Um, uh, titles of the Holy Spirit in Scripture. I think this is, Calvin does some wonderful biblical theology in this section. He just kind of works through the different titles of the Spirit. I think this will be helpful for us to look at. Um, he says, here it is useful to note what titles are applied to the Holy Spirit in Scripture when the beginning and the whole renewal of our salvation are under discussion. First, he is called the Spirit of Adoption because he is the witness to us of the free benevolence of God with which the Father has embraced us in his beloved only begotten Son to become a father to us. We know that God is a father to us because he is a father to Jesus, and we are brought into that divine family by the work of the Holy Spirit. We have been adopted as sons and daughters of God. In fact, the Spirit supplies the very words that we may fearlessly cry, Abba, Father, right? Romans 8, Galatians 4. For the same reason, the Spirit is called the guarantee and seal of our inheritance, 2 Corinthians 1, Ephesians 1, because from heaven he so gives life to us on pilgrimage in the world and resembling dead men as to assure us that our salvation is safe in God's unfailing care. The Spirit seals us to God and makes our salvation sure. He is also called life because of righteousness. He gives us life because he imparts the righteousness of Christ to us. By his secret watering, the Spirit makes us fruitful to bring forth the buds of righteousness, right? This is the whole idea of the fruit of the Spirit um, from Galatians. Accordingly, he is frequently called water, as in Isaiah, come all ye who thirst to the waters. I actually love this work that Calvin does here, that he, he basically goes back to the Old Testament, you know, through the lens of the New Testament and says, all right, wherever you see water talked about in a, in a way that it's a, given as a gift to the people of God for their life and their renewal, it's actually talking about the Holy Spirit. And I think he's right there. Um, but that's, that's what he's doing here. He's going back into the Old Testament through the lens of the new. 
in the lens of the work of Christ and the sending of the Spirit. Um, accordingly, the Spirit is frequently called water, as in Isaiah, Come all ye who thirst to the waters. Also I shall pour out my Spirit upon him who thirsts, and rivers upon the dry land. To these verses, Christ's statement, quoted above, corresponds, John 7. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me. And sometimes the Spirit is so called because of his power to cleanse and to purify. So he's called water not just because he gives nourishment and life to things that need to grow. He's also called water because he cleanses and purifies, as in Ezekiel, where the Lord promises clean water in which he will wash away the filth of his people. He's also called oil and anointing because he gives vigor and life. On the other hand, persistently boiling away and burning up our vicious and inordinate desires, he inflames our hearts with the love of God and with zealous devotion. From this effect upon us, he is also justly called fire. Fire, that's the way that John the Baptist referred to the Holy Spirit, right, in Luke 3. In short, he is described as the spring whence all heavenly riches flow to us, or as the hand of God. Remember, the apostles cast out demons and healed the sick. By the hand of God, they said, meaning the Spirit in Acts 5, by which he exercises his might. For by the inspiration of his power, he so breathes the divine life into us that we are no longer actuated by ourselves. It is no longer our own hearts, our own souls, our own minds that are giving us life if we are in Christ. It is actually the Spirit of Jesus, the Holy Spirit. Um, he is actually um, ruling our actions and prompting um, he is, he, is, he is giving us his own life. That's what it means for us to be filled by the Spirit. Accordingly, whatever good things are in us are the fruits of his grace, right? Not our work. And without him, our gifts are darkness of mind and perversity of heart. Um, if we did not have the Spirit in us bearing fruit, then we would only bear the fruit of wickedness. As has been already clearly explained, until our minds become intent upon the Spirit, Christ, so to speak, lies idle because we coldly contemplate him as outside ourselves, indeed far from us. Without the work of the Spirit, Christ is far from us and no good to us. He must dwell with us and be made one with us by the Spirit. Um, he goes on and talks about how um, that Christ benefits only those whose head he is, that he is the firstborn that we've put him on. This union alone ensures that as far as we concerned, he has not unprofitably come with the name of Savior. The same purpose is served by that sacred wedlock through which we are made flesh of his flesh and bone of his bone. Right? Even marriage, even the sexual union is, is really the ultimate picture of this union that we share with Jesus and thus are one with him. But he unites himself to us by the Spirit alone. By the grace and power of the same Spirit, we are made his members to keep us under himself and in turn to possess him. By the Spirit, we possess Jesus Christ. He goes on and talks about how the faith is the work of the Spirit. Um, the Spirit um, gives us uh, the promise of salvation. He is the teacher. The Spirit assigns the task, um, has been assigned the task of bringing to mind what Jesus taught. That's what Jesus described the Spirit's role in John 14, that the Spirit of truth would reveal all things to the disciples when he came. Um, okay, I'll stop there for any questions. Any questions about the work of the Spirit before we talk about faith? What do you all think? Is that a new way of thinking about the Spirit?
something you're familiar with. It's very different, I think we can say. If you went into a bookstore today and looked for books on the Holy Spirit, all right, most of them would emphasize signs and wonders or different kinds of private forms of spirituality. Yes, sir. Yes, that's a very good point. Yep, very different than two. Yeah, I think that's a good, I think that's a good uh, uh, summary. Yeah, 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 a good talking point. Yeah, so Ben, so would you say that the point of the Holy Spirit is not to point to himself, but to point to Christ? And I think that's right. Certainly John 14 seems to speak about the Spirit that way, John 16, yeah. Um, that the Spirit is the one that is going to reveal the Son in its fullness to the, to the disciples. Yeah, James. You don't have to. Well, but then you just get into the mystery of the Trinity and the Spirit being in Christ's presence with us. Yes. So, yes and no. Right. Well, yeah, yeah. You can't, you can't, you can't fundamentally separate the persons of the Godhead. Sure. Yeah. Yes. Yes. To be filled with the Spirit of the Holy Spirit is to be filled with Christ Himself and the Father. That's why. And. In John 14, um, Jesus promises the Father, I and the Father will come and dwell within you, right? It says that to the, we'll make, make our home in your hearts and to the disciples. How is that going to happen other than the work of the Holy Spirit? Alyssa, do you have a question? No, it's great. No, 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 I think that's totally, it's certainly part of the role of the Spirit is to guide and direct our lives. I think the, the clarifications I would say is that we would say that, that we always want to make sure that we know that the Spirit sort of giving us insight is not somehow his primary, sometimes it, that can, people can make that, I think, his primary work is to sort of be a, you know, a, a tell you the next step in your life or reveal something to you. And the Spirit's primary work is always to bring us into union with Christ and to maintain His presence with us. The other thing I would say is that the Spirit has promised to work in a particular way, um, primarily through the Word, um, that He actually speaks to us in the Word, and He speaks to us in the context of the church. Um, he speaks through other Spirit-filled believers um, in the community of, of the church. So I think it's going to be the exception that the Spirit is going to somehow speak to you privately, silently, some kind of mystical, hidden way. Usually the way the Spirit speaks to you is through the Word, um, through prayer, you know, through other believers looking at the Word with you. You know what I mean? Like, th these are the ways that the Spirit works. It's not some... So yes, we should pray for the Spirit for guidance, but we should expect Him to speak in ways that He's promised to speak, I would say. Yeah, one more and we'll move on to faith. Yes, ma'am. I totally understand, yeah. 
Sure. I would, yeah, I would just simply say that um, if you are baptized and you trust in Jesus Christ, you are filled with the Spirit, full stop. Um, I mean, that really is the emphasis of Acts 2. The Spirit has come upon all flesh. Um, there is no distinction. Um, and then, you know, you see the, the people that are watching the apostles and the Spirit that is indwelling them, and they want to get a part of this, and what do they say? They, Peter says, repent and be baptized, um, and you'll be filled with the Spirit too. Right? This, this is not, it's not some exclusive gift only for a chosen few that get the Spirit in a different way than others. Um, if you're baptized and trust in the person of Jesus Christ, the Spirit has indwell you. Indeed, you could not do that without the indwelling of the Spirit. Um, so that's, that's what I would say. Yeah, I, and I, I think, speaking of my own life, that's one of the areas of the charismatic Pentecostal tradition that I think can be really dangerous is it can create this multiple-tier Christianity based on how much of the Spirit you contain. And I'm speaking from experience here. Like, this is something I lived in and experienced myself. Um, and I just think that there's no basis for that. Um, the Spirit indwells each of us. Yeah. Not, not always the same gifts, not always the same callings, but we all have the, a, full, a full share of the Spirit, for sure. Yeah. Good question. It's a great question. All right. Let's talk about faith a little bit. Faith, its definition set forth and its properties explained. Um, the object of faith is Christ. Um, uh, I was reading one of the books looking at, thinking about Calvin's teaching on faith, and um, the way that that author put it was that for ourselves, faith is the means by which we are brought into union with Christ. From God's perspective, the Spirit is the one who unites us. But in terms of our role, so quote-unquote, our role that is provoked by the Spirit, our role is faith. That's how we are brought into union with Jesus. Um, he says, but now we ought to examine what this faith ought to be like, through which those adopted by God as his children come to possess the heavenly kingdom. Since it is certain that no mere opinion or even persuasion is capable of bringing such a great thing to pass. Indeed, most people, when they hear this term, faith, understand nothing deeper than a common assent to the gospel history. So it's just sort of a, yeah, I believe, you know, I believe that this happened. In fact, when faith is discussed in the schools, they call God simply the object of faith, and by fleeting speculations, as we have elsewhere stated, lead miserable souls astray rather than direct them to a definite goal. I think this is really important. Um, often today you'll see religious surveys, they'll be trying to, to, you know, to figure out who, who is religious in the society, and they'll ask this question, right, do you believe in God? Right, do you believe in God? And I suppose that's a fair question or whatever, but for Calvin, that, that is not the same thing as Christian faith, right? Simply believing in God doesn't mean anything. Um, actually, if you think believing in God is simply all that's required of you, um, then you are, as Calvin puts it, being led astray uh, by, rather than direct, being directed to a definite goal. Our faith is not in God, quote-unquote. Our faith is in Jesus Christ. Because God, so the, the key question to discern someone's, you know, relationship to the Christian faith is to ask them, what do you believe regarding Jesus Christ? Do you believe he's the son of God? Do you believe he died for your sins? Do you put your trust in him? Uh, for since God dwells in an accessible light, Christ must become our intermediary. Um, for no one comes to the Father except through him, because he alone knows the Father, and afterward the believer 
whom he wishes to reveal to him. So when we, when we talk about faith, we're not just talking about faith in some generic sense. We're talking about faith in Jesus. Um, <clears throat> for this purpose, the Father laid up with his only begotten Son all that he had to reveal himself in Christ, so that Christ, by communicating his Father's benefits, might express the true image of, the glor- of his glory. Um, he goes on and says, Augustine has finally spoken of this matter. In discussing the goal of faith, he teaches that we must know our destination and the way to it. We must know where we're going and how to get there. Then immediately after, Augustine infers that the way is most fortified against all errors by he who was both God and man. Namely, as God, Christ is the destination to which we move. As man, he is the path by which we go. Both are found in Christ alone. Our faith must have a radical focus on the person of Jesus Christ. Um, Faith rests upon the word, of course, Um, We receive true knowledge of Christ if we receive him as he is offered by the Father, namely clothed with his gospel, with the good news of his work that is contained in the scriptures. For just as he has been appointed as the goal of our faith, so we cannot take the right road in him unless the gospel goes before us. The same word is the basis whereby faith is supported and sustained. If it turns away from the word, it falls. Um, so we, we trust the revelation of Jesus as he is given to us in the scriptures. That is where we find the Christ who is the object of our faith. Um, our faith arises from God's promise of grace in Christ. I think this is really um, helpful for us to see that our, our faith comes because we believe Christ, uh, God is good to us in Jesus. Um, Calvin says that our, the sole pledge of God's love is Christ that it is in Christ that we know that God loves us and and that this is fundamental for us to have faith in him. Uh, We must understand how Jesus reveals the goodness of the Father. Here indeed is the chief hinge on which faith turns, Calvin says, that we do not regard the promises of mercy that God offers as true only outside ourselves. So we're we're not just regarding these things as being true about Jesus or about God, um, sort of objectively out there somewhere, um, but rather that we make them ours by inwardly embracing them. Um, It's not just simply enough to believe that Jesus um, died for uh, the sins of the world or that Jesus was God and man. We must uh, embrace them ourselves. We must believe he has done this for us, um, that uh, our, our sins were covered by his death. Hence, at last, is born that confidence which Paul elsewhere calls peace. Briefly, he alone is truly a believer who, convinced by a firm conviction that God is a kindly and well-disposed father toward him, promises himself all things on the basis of his generosity, who, relying upon the promises of divine benevolence toward him, lays hold on an undoubted expectation of salvation. We cannot otherwise well comprehend the goodness of God unless we gather from it the fruit of great assurance. So the assurance of our faith, I think this is really interesting. Um, Often we talk about assurance and we want to locate the the basis of our assurance in something in ourselves, right? The quality of our faith, um, the quality of our life, um, the, the way we've put off sin, the way that we don't doubt. But for Calvin, the assurance of our faith doesn't rest in us, it rests in the character of God. Um, the character of God is what makes us sure about our faith. It's because we know that God is good as he has revealed himself in Jesus um, that we can have confidence about our own faith. 
faith in the struggle against temptation. He says, surely, while we teach that faith ought to be certain and assured, that section is actually very pastoral. Calvin goes into great length about the different qualities of faith and what to do if you have weak and doubting faith. We'll see that here as we go. But I definitely commend this section to you in its entirety. Surely, while we teach that faith ought to be certain and assured, we cannot imagine any certainty that is not tinged with doubt or any assurance that is not assailed by some anxiety. Right? Who among us has not had some doubt or had some anxiety about our faith? On the other hand, we say that believers are in perpetual conflict with their own unbelief. That's a pretty striking statement, right? Believers are in perpetual conflict with their own unbelief. Calvin acknowledges the reality um, that, that you are going to wrestle with your faith, that you're going to wrestle with your confidence and, and, and your belief. Far indeed are we from putting their consciences in any peaceful repose, undisturbed by any tumult at all. Right? We are actually disturbed by tumult. Yet once again we deny that in whatever way believers are afflicted, they fall away and depart from the certain assurance that is received from God's mercy. Okay, what's, what's the first thing that happens often when you start to doubt your faith? What do you begin to doubt next? Your assurance, right? Your salvation. You mean to say, well, you know, I'm not really sure I believe, and so I must not be saved. Look what Calvin says. In whatever way they are afflicted in terms of their conflict with their unbelief, we, they fall away and depart. We deny, rather, that they fall away and depart from the certain assurance that is received from what? Not from the quality of our faith, but from the mercy of God. I think that is a fundamental, certainly in the pastoral work I've done with folks, that is not usually how people think about their assurance. Usually we locate the basis of our assurance on the quality of our faith, the quality of our spiritual life. For Calvin, our assurance must be based on the mercy of God. And then Calvin goes in and talks about um, the scriptures. Scripture sets forth no more illustrious or memorable example of faith than in David, especially if you look at the whole course of his life. Yet with innumerable complaints, he declares how unquiet his mind always was, right? David was always complaining to God, even though he's also held up as a paragon of faith. Um, He talks about his soul, why are you disquieted in me, hope in God, etc., etc. And yet, um, David also rose up and, and fought with that. He struggled. He who's struggling with his own weakness presses toward faith in his moments of anxiety is already in large part victorious. I think that's a wonderful pastoral exhortation to those who are doubting their faith. If you're struggling with your weakness, don't spiral into asking questions about, well, I'll probably not save because I have weakness. No, press forward in your faith and be victorious in Christ. Therefore, the godly heart feels in itself a division because it is partly imbued from its sweetness, from its recognition of the divine goodness, and yet it partly grieves in bitterness from an awareness of its calamity. It partly rests upon the promise of the gospel, partly trembles at the evidence of its own iniquity. It partly rejoices at the expectation of life. It partly shudders at death. Right? Who among us does not have faith like this that both rejoices and shudders, that trembles as well as delights? This variation, Calvin says, arises from imperfection of faith. Since in the course of the present life, it never goes so well with us that we are here wholly cured of the disease of unbelief and entirely filled and possessed by faith. What Calvin is saying is, it's not just you, it's everybody, right? Everyone. No one is fully cured of the disease of unbelief in this life. That's a profound way for him to put this. 
No one is entirely filled and possessed by faith in this present life. It is always a struggle. Hence arise those conflicts when unbelief which reposes in the remains of the flesh rises up to attack the faith which has been inwardly conceived. So that, that unbelief is actually a part of the flesh that we war against. It's not, a, it's not an ontological statement about who we are. It's something we are to put off, according to Calvin, and reject about ourselves. We are to put it off and strive towards perfect belief. But if in the believing mind certainty is mixed with doubt, do we not always come back to this, that faith does not rest in a certain and clear knowledge, but only in an obscure and confused knowledge of the divine will for us, toward us? Not at all. For even if we are distracted by various thoughts, we are not on that account completely divorced from faith. Um, nor, nor if we are troubled on all sides by the agitation of unbelief, are we for that reason immersed in its abyss. Just because you have doubts does not believe you do not have faith. Calvin is saying this again and again. If we are struck, we are not for that reason cast down from our position. For the end of the conflict is always this, that faith ultimately triumphs over those difficulties which besiege and seem to imperil it. Why does faith always triumph? Where does the whole of our salvation come from, according to Calvin? It comes from God. That is why our faith always triumphs, because it is not ours. It is a gift for us, given to us by the Spirit. To sum up, I'm, I'm sorry, I just want to focus on that title right there. I bolded it so I wouldn't forget. Even weak faith is real faith. You should put that on a meme and put John Calvin's name after it, right? That would be good. It's not the kind of thing we usually hear about from Calvin. Even weak faith is real faith, period. You know, that's something to meditate on. Even weak faith is real faith. To sum up, when first, even the last, least drop of faith is instilled in our minds, we begin to contemplate God's face, peaceful and calm and gracious toward us. We see him far off, but so clearly as we know, we are not at all deceived. Then the more we advance as we ought to continually advance with steady progress, as it were, the nearer and thus sure sight of him we obtain. Faith is something we grow in. It's not something we get all the way at once and just maintain the rest of our life. It's something that we are meant to grow in and mature in day by day, year by year. We get closer and have a fuller knowledge of God as we grow in our sanctification. And by the very continuance, he is made even more familiar to us. God should be being made more familiar to you, which means that you have an incomplete knowledge of him right now, right? If you're going to increase in your knowledge of him. It is like a man who's shut up in a prison into which the sun's rays shine obliquely and half obscured through a rather narrow window, is indeed deprived of the full sight of the sun, right? It's a guy lying in a prison cell. The, the beams of the sun are coming through a little bit. You know, it's a little cloudy um, through into his cell. Yet his eyes dwell. He can't see the whole sun, yet his eyes dwell on its steadfast brightness, and he receives its benefits. Even though he cannot see the entire thing, he still, his heart is gladdened by the rays of the sun shining into his cell. Thus bound with the fetters of an earthly body, However much we are shadowed on every side with great darkness, we are nevertheless illumined as much as need be for firm assurance. When to show forth his mercy, the light of God sheds even a little of his radiance. Calvin would say, okay, you think because you have weak faith that you're not truly a believer. Calvin would say, you have faith. How did that happen? It was not you who did it. So therefore you must be a believer because the spirit has worked in your heart and given you some element of faith. Does that make sense? Like, if you start with this opposition that you can't do anything on your own, that any kind of movement towards God must be the work of the Spirit, 
That should actually give you assurance that you have, if you have any faith at all, that should give you assurance. Thus the disciples whom Christ rebuked for the smallness of their faith complained that they were perishing, right? This, the wind is blowing, Lord, we are perishing. What does he say? He says, have faith, and yet imploring his help. Indeed, while he reproves them, he does say, have faith. For their little faith, he does not cast them out of the ranks of his disciples or count them among unbelievers, but urges them to shake off that fault, right? Calvin doesn't, I mean, Jesus doesn't say to the disciples, well, you doubted, out, you jump out the boat, right? No, he doesn't say that. He says, have faith, believe. Therefore, we repeat what we have already stated, that the root of faith can never be torn from the godly breast because it was put there by God, not by you but clings so fast to the inmost parts that however a faith seems to be shaken or to bend this way or that, its light is never so extinguished or snuffed out that it does not at least lurk, as it were, beneath the ashes. And this example shows that the word, which is an incorruptible seed, brings forth fruit like itself, whose fertility never wholly dries up and dies. The reason we believe that the root of faith can never be torn from us is it was put there by God through his word and the work of the Holy Spirit. It cannot be taken away because you did not create it. All right, I'll stop there. Any questions or comments in a minute or two before we wrap up here? Yes, Ben. Yeah, I mean, certainly our assurance can be derived from other sources as well, you know, from good works, um, from sanctification, growth. Those things are, are part of our assurance as we see the work of the Spirit. I guess I wouldn't, I wouldn't put that in contradiction to this, though, because I think Calvin would say still God is the author of those things, right? It's not our own diligence. But yeah, no, I, I see what you're saying. That, yeah, it's, not, it's not only God's mercy that gives us assurance of faith, but even the way we experience it in our lives. Yes, ma'am. Uh huh. Yeah. Sure. Right. 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 He just kind of survived. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 Carrie's referring to the man who was in prison in Turkey, Christian pastor, EPC pastor, for many years, right? Several years at least, I think. Two years. Yeah. 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 No, that's a great. That's a great connection. Yeah. got time for one more. Anybody? All right. Well, think on these things. Think on these things. Consider them as you consider the quality of your own faith and the assurance that you're tempted to derive from it. But all these things are a gift of God. Let's stand and pray. Father, we thank you for the work of your Holy Spirit that by um, your will, he brings us into eternal union with your Son. And so we are made also Um, one with you. 
And Father, we are thankful for that promise, and we are thankful that in Christ, by the work of the Spirit, we are indeed your beloved sons and daughters. Father, as we think about our faith, um, help us, Lord, to derive our assurance not from the quality of our faith, from the lack of doubt, but from your mercy, from your goodness. I hope, pray that we would, you would encourage us, Father, with this reality that even weak faith is real faith, uh, because that even faith in any level existing in us is evidence of your Spirit's work. It is a gift from you and not of our own doing. Help us, Father, instead of spiraling into these questions about our own salvation. Help us rather um, to put off our unbelief and to increase our faith and come to know you more. We pray this by the person of your Son, the work of his Spirit. Amen. Amen.